Chapter 5 Oh baby, it's a wide world. The last year at university was then, as I'm sure it is now, the business end of the entire process. Attenders mattered, assignments mattered, and you needed a strong finish in the final exams. I worked hard, was really professional, and nailed all three. My results were so far ahead of the rest that Mr Grisenthwaite called me in to say they were creating a special results section to acknowledge my achievement. Because it was an ordinary rather than honours, they couldn't give me a first class degree, but said they would award it with distinction. He cared, I didn't. They also wanted me to go on to do a master's and work on sick building syndrome with a Norwegian professor called Fanger. He really wanted me to go over there. I didn't. I'd had enough of full-time education by then and didn't want to live out our Ronnie's prophecy that I would be at school until I retired. Time for me to actually build summit, I told him. By this time, I had met the woman of my dreams and the love of my life. Typically, it was in unconventional, if not embarrassing, circumstances. It was New Year in my last year at Leeds and I was home for the usual dysfunctional Sewell festivities. I had arranged to go out with my mate John Revel, who was in the same downbeat mood as me, albeit his family were normal and lovely. I had split up with my long-term girlfriend Carol and I can't remember Revs ever having a girlfriend prior to him getting hitched to the crazy Caroline. My favourite club in Hull at that time was in the old town on the corner of Scale Lane and High Street, a rabbit warren of rooms on four floors called Beer Keller. A former teacher's club, it was alternative and funky. The queues to get in were always a drawback as the doormen let in their favourites, who were, unsurprisingly, always unescorted women. Fortunately, this wasn't a problem on a quiet night between Christmas and New Year. There was a subdued atmosphere on this particular night and those few people in the place stood out and were obvious to each other. I was only bothered about one. This petite, striking girl with long jet black hair, a round full face and sumptuous glossy red lips had an oriental look without having any oriental features. I later postulated that it was her size, hair and in particular the way she looked at things rather quizzically with head slightly tilted back, thereby narrowing her eyes. She was definitely not a student, which made me even more keen to engage her. She told me that her name was Sue, and the obligatory dance and offer to buy her a drink was followed by acute embarrassment when I realised I was out of money. Revel's wallet was as empty as mine, so Sue got the round in, and that's when I knew she was special. That special in being understanding and kind, rather than having met a special bloke. She must have thought there was something there though, for when I asked her if I could see her again, she said yes. So began a near 50 year relationship at the time of writing. Sue says of me that she's never quite known whether I was special or special needs, but what I do know is that the relationship was special from the off. We corresponded incessantly while I was in Leeds, our first letters to each other being penned just hours after we'd met. The phone box at the bottom of Oakwood Avenue had me almost permanent resident to the chagrin of the other would-be users. The week could not pass quickly enough. Friday was joyful and Sunday evening depressing, the weekend between the bit I lived for. 
My studies benefited because I got my head down and worked hard during the week. It was the other stuff that suffered. Friday and Saturday nights out didn't finish till the early hours, with me often crossing paths with Dad as he went out to work. Owls are nocturnal. They come alive at night, he would mumble, his gaze not meeting my bleary eyes as we passed in the hall or on the drive. My resultant lack of sharpness on the football field on Saturday afternoons after a morning lying, I'm sure hastened my exit from Bridlington Town. My relationship with my parents plunged to an all-time low as they would not accept Sue, hoping and praying that I would reconcile with Carol, always a big favourite. They could not contemplate Mum ever having a showing up with this particular prospective daughter-in-law and adopted what was, for someone with my temperament, a high-risk stance. Sue's parents also had some reservations about the match, Mother Audrey being concerned about the reputation of the Sewells. If they're not fighting with people, they're fighting with each other, she complained. It became an issue of principle for me, particularly as they had never even met Sue, so could not possibly form an opinion. They were, however, certainly forming opinions about my judgement, which was never going to work with the young Paul. Tell me I can't do something, and I'll pursue it vigorously. My record at school should have demonstrated that. My siblings had always succumbed to my parents' views and values, but I would not. The standoff intensified and fractured the family to the point where none of them attended my wedding a few years later. Brother Ronnie came to the reception and halfway through the evening publicly offered me outside. I thought, here we go again, a typical Sewell wedding, as I heard a shriek of, oh God, they're going to fight. But he was not a scrap he wanted. Ronnie was drunk and emotional. He only wanted to congratulate me on standing up to them and being my own man. We felt like brothers at that moment outside Skidby Village Hall. Close like never before or since. It must have been one of the most basic and frugal weddings in the East Riding that year. Sue borrowed some flowers from the grounds of Bricknell Primary School for her bouquet. She and her mother created the buffet for the reception at the salubrious Skidby Village Hall. The procession down to the registry office on Lairgate in Beverley was via my mate's cars and the Grange Park Hotel's most basic package provided the reception on a windy but sunny September day. Among the flared trouser suits with their wide lapels, kipper ties, porn star moustaches and big hair, and with the support of my three best men, John Revel, Ian Grandage and Bob Sewell, I answered the question, do you Paul Edwin, with the most heartfelt and unequivocal yes of my life. The wedding was timed to coincide with the completion of the refurbishment of a terraced house at 232 Northgate, backing onto the park in Cottingham, where I'd played football and cricket throughout my childhood. A charming, if originally decrepit little property that we had bought a couple of years earlier. The vendor was the estate of the recently deceased Mrs Lamb, but after agreeing a sale for £6,900, our deal hit problems regarding probate. The issue was that Mr Lamb was one of those devout Scots who lived in England all of his life whilst wishing and pretending that he didn't. He had made out his will in Scottish law. Our lawyer, Cliff Beharrell of Goschok Solicitors, spotted that because of this the house had never legally passed in English law to his wife and therefore her estate could not sell it to us with proper title. This was one of those times when you are grateful for having a good lawyer. Cliff would not settle the matter until title was proven 
and proper so we could ourselves sell with no problems when the time came. The wrangling lasted two years and we had to make a decision whether to risk carrying out the refurbishment before the sale had been legally completed. We desperately wanted this house and a home of our own and with the support and reassurance of Cliffby Harrell together with the hard work and practical building skills of Sue's father George our dream became a reality coinciding with that September wedding. This was fantastic for we had been bringing up our son Patrick in somebody else's home albeit that of Sue's parents Audrey and George Wakefield at 46 Murrayfield Road in Hull. This wasn't ideal even back then when it happened a lot to other people. I often joked that my prospective father-in-law George was so industrious in his efforts at 232 Northgate he wanted to get rid of daughter and grandson at the earliest opportunity so he could reclaim his home for himself. And why not? I was only home on weekends but got on with George really well so none of this was a problem. In fact, looking back, it was great fun at a time when family common purpose bonded us together, building for the future. A future of closeness in that we socialised, enjoyed meals out and shared holidays way beyond the norm in other families. Mam was abnormal the other way in choosing to be totally absent from our lives at this precious time and so they missed it all. I never really forgave them. Nor did I forgive a guy called Derek McIntyre for inflicting my second serious injury on the same knee. I used to like training with my mates as a respite from the more serious and arduous workouts with my semi-pro Saturday team. I was even getting used to the idea of dropping down a level. On this particular evening, Cotton were training at the local park just around the corner, so I went for a kickabout. This always carried an element of risk if one was supposed to be a big-time Charlie playing at a decent level and in the local newspapers etc. I knew our Bob's brother-in-law Derek, also training, had a chip on both shoulders and you had to watch him in this type of situation. Although a slightly portly goalkeeper, he was enjoying playing outfield in a close of session game on a pitch that was slick with recent rain. I always played well within myself in such circumstances, careful never to take the mick with any fancy stuff always playing one and two touch, nice and simple, and I did so on this occasion. The problem was that after I played the ball away, Derek was committed to a big, showboating sliding tackle on the wet turf, and I couldn't get out of the way. He clattered into me like a madman, and although it didn't seem as serious as the leg break at Barton, I knew it wasn't good. I didn't make a big thing of it, hobbled home, and even went to work over the next couple of days on site, as a less than mobile engineer. Worryingly, I had to lift my left leg with my hands to get around, even lifting it on and off the clutch when driving the car. I knew this couldn't be right, so eventually went to Hull Royal for an x-ray. My worst fears were confirmed. I had ruptured the cruciate ligament in my left knee, the knee that was just getting back to full strength after the fracture, so it was back to full length plaster cast for another eight weeks. A sorry would have been nice, Derek. I knew my hopes of getting back to a professional standard had gone with that lunatic challenge, but it was time to show a bit of mental strength and fortitude, and with this I think I did okay. I was never one for overthinking things. I didn't with that first injury, or my eye problems, and although some might say I'm a bit distant and lacking in sensitivity, I am fully equipped for life with all its ups and downs. 
Concentrate on what you can do rather than what you can't, on what you've got rather than what you haven't, and live for today because life's a series of nows, and count your blessings regularly. Above all, I have learned that dealing with setbacks by having the necessary resilience is as much a part of success as talent and hard work. Settling down in our first home in Northgate was enlivened by some interesting neighbours on either side of the terrace. To one side, we had the eccentric Klukas family of Reg, Shirley and kids Ross and Kerry. On the other side, mid-terrace, were the battling Crawfords, Dave and Val, with kids Michael and Anne. Reg was a flawed genius, a big, wild Geordie, all on Kemp grain hair and full moustache. He wore a leather jacket and walked around with a super-confident swagger. A commercial diver by profession, he had his own business, Klukas Diving, which had pioneered and patented an underwater cutting and welding technique that had made him quite famous in the industry, and even more famous in our local, the Duke of Cumberland on Cottingham Green. I often wondered why he was still living in a terraced house in Cottingham, but then he was very much of an eccentric, so I thought perhaps the low profile suited him. Either way, I didn't exchange words with him, we had absolutely nothing in common. What didn't suit him though was his wife Shirley, who seemed far too genteel and refined for such a rough diamond. They just did not appear a couple and there was an obvious clash of cultures. Trouble had been brewing for some time and we hardly ever saw them together. Then dawned the fateful day. I was pottering in the back garden and needed to pop round to the Klukases for some reason, possibly a lost ball of Patrick's. I didn't think anybody was in as I entered the property from the rear, so Reg surprised me when he emerged from his back door. He was obviously upset and he immediately confronted me with an intensity I wasn't expecting and had never before experienced. Nobody rants and swears like a Geordie on form. If a man can't wash his own bollocks in his own fucking sink, he explained, they're my bollocks and it's my bloody sink, so what's the fucking problem? Fuck em. The rant ended with him standing stock still and staring at me with his crazy eyes. I did wonder whether he'd removed the washing up before bathing in the sink, but thought better of commenting and let the deafening silence prevail. After what seemed an age, he broke his fixed gaze, turned on his heels and walked down the path and into the back ten foot. Reg and Shirley eventually split up and Reg died a few short years later. I heard there was a similar excruciating silence at his typically quirky atheist funeral held at his workshop on the edge of the village. The gathered mourners stood around in his yard, not knowing what to do or say. Eldest son Michael eventually broke the tension by being the first to speak. I liked Reg, he said. He was like a father to me. The party then started. Reg would have approved. I have found that many of the most successful entrepreneurs have an eccentricity that sets them apart. We call Dave and Val the battling Crawfords because they were always niggling each other in full earshot of our kitchen at the rear. When we heard Val exclaim, I've worked all my life, as the latest row began, we could mimic the exchange word for word, and we did. So when I smiling knowingly at one another throughout the performance... 
On more than one occasion, Val would scuttle purposefully out of her front door, traverse the two front gates and come round to our front door, carrying a bottle of vodka at arm's length in front of her as if it were contaminated with some deadly nerve agent. Then she'd offer it up to us with the plea, Please take this and never let me have it back. She'd be back within the hour demanding the return of her property. Then came the fateful night. Once more we were to witness a moment of truth, this time in the front garden on Northgate in the early hours of the morning. Val had departed the family home as usual with a cutting insult to Dave's masculinity, a suicide threat and a pledge of permanent departure, but we awaited her return within half an hour as usual. This time it was different. It was well over an hour and we were thinking she might have gone through with it this time. But no. She arrived from the north end of Harland Way, wet through, her hair stuck to her skull and looking like a drowned rat. She squelched and dripped her way past our front gate, nose in the air and a shoe in each hand. We postulated that she'd gone up to the school on Harland Way and either accidentally or on purpose come across the swimming pool, taking advantage of an opportunity to draw attention to herself that was too good to miss. We hoped that our neighbours' marriages weren't a predictor for our fledgling one and resolved to pay heed to the warnings they provided for us. We were so happy being in our own place but sometimes wished for a bit more privacy and a little less entertainment. I also learned that alcohol is the cause of a lot of strife and must be a controlled intermittent pleasure rather than a way of life. People were so kind in helping us make a home not just father-in-law George with his practical input, but his bosses, the housing developer Moss Holmes, where the owner, Mrs Moss, gifted us an avocado bathroom suite, that appalling colour apparently being popular at the time. Our Bob's in-laws, the McIntyres, parents of the dreaded Derrick, donated a fridge and a set of front room curtains that were a nice colour, but four inches short of the windowsill. Items falling short of perfection replicated the lino of the Devon Street scullery floor of my childhood, so I was not sensitive to these shortcomings at all. Quite the opposite. My dad broke his self-imposed detachment by chipping in with some kitchen units, for which George found some spare tiles on site. They also played tribute to the Devon Street lino, as they were almost an unbearable garish yellow with an insulting abstract pattern. But as with my parents... Beggars can't be choosers. I spent my 30th birthday in that terraced house. Hard to believe, really, given where we live now. Replicating the kindness we received back then is something we try to do now. Giving something back creates as good a vibe personally as it does corporately, and I still use the somewhat preachy phrase, choose being kind over being right. Sue has always found my pachamp for nightmares and sleepwalking extremely disconcerting. The most dangerous episode occurred after I had acquired a new cricket bat. It was not unusual for me to take the treasured possession up to bed and this bat was leaning against the wall on my side of the bed so I could appreciate its elegance and beauty as I fell asleep. That night, however, it had made its way into my dreams. Sue was startled awake by my animated naked frame at the end of the bed, brandishing the bat and doing impressions of Ian Botham. Me waving this lethal timber around must have been pretty scary for Sue, so she decided on a softly, softly approach. 
Put it down, Paul. Take it easy now, she whispered. What? When I'm in the 90s? In the same bedroom, I had what I thought was a bad dream, which unfortunately turned out to be real. When I awoke on the 9th of December 1980, and my radio alarm clock brought the news that John Lennon had been assassinated the previous night in New York City. He was 40, I was 28, another symbol of my youth was gone. Food and the family meal have always been of ultra importance to both Sue and I. We very much lived to eat rather than eat to live. My parents were traditional and predictable as far as cooking went, so Sue's adventurous cooking with Italian food a favourite, was a welcome change for me. Pasta with spicy sauces, pizza with luxurious toppings, and Mediterranean salads of various types became a regular part of my diet for the rest of my life. Another welcome change in culinary discovery came through my mate Richard Clough introducing me to Asian street food in Bradford. We were working together and I was staying with him in Oakworth. Before then, a curry for me came from Vesta and was a cowpat of mildly spiced fruity mints sitting within a halo of white rice. After a few beers in town, Richard took me for the Bradford initiation, my first sortie into an authentic Indian takeaway. The aromas of the spices, the frying meats and the simmering sauces blew my mind. Then to be presented with my dish of food accompanied by what looked like a pancake to eat it with, well, this suggested that I was in a different world. It was one I loved from the off, an ethnic food of any sort, Indian, Thai, Chinese, etc., became a lifelong passion. From then on, I could never countenance a diet that did not originate from all parts of the world. The passion for nice wine came later, as I went back through the normal phases of a young British male passed through back then. Of beer, to spirits, to wine, to oblivion. The serious athlete's supposed taboo regarding alcohol was nonsense. A drinking culture was endemic, and a couple of shandies the night before a game was the norm. Training was always followed by a few pints, a game by more, and a victory by more than was sensible. As for winning a trophy, this would lead to the obliteration of a lost weekend of stag party proportions. I remember being on an all-night bender one Saturday with my former schoolmates Revel and Grandage, and then going straight to an important fruit trade Sunday league game against big rivals Anlaby the next day. My teammates said I looked dire, but I scored four first-half goals while still pissed before being taken off at half-time in order to preserve life. Yet again, Dad categorised my performance as crap. He said that for turning up in that state, I should be disciplined and not picked again for the rest of the season. Ronnie said he would sooner have me half-pissed for half a game than any other striker in Hull, stone-cold sober for 90 minutes. Bless him. It was all very George Best and indicative of the culture of the time. This is not nostalgic, boastful or clever. It's just the way it was. George, you may recall, died of liver failure at 59. One of my early date nights with Sue was at the cinema to see a film called Paper Moon with Ryan O'Neill and his daughter Tatum. I can remember it vividly because I think it was the last film we saw at the flicks, me having a genetic aversion to the cinema. Desperate to impress, 
I succumbed to the courting convention of the day. What failed to impress Sue was that after being seated in the auditorium, I pulled out a full bottle of Clan Dew, a toxic mixture of cheap wine and even cheaper whiskey. I proceeded to swig from the bottle as the opening credits rolled on the silver screen. She probably realised then that I was still a lead student rather than a mature date. The maturing process included adopting an attitude towards our generation's legal but lethal drug of choice, booze. This would take me over 25 years of risk and heartache, culminating in a settled accommodation of no beer or spirits, but an overindulgence in some decent wine at weekends and on holidays. Life's too short to drink crap wine, as they say, and I'll drink to that. Between and after the big injuries, I half-heartedly flirted with various attempts at a comeback, knowing in my heart that my football career was over. I was just reluctant to finally admit it. Outings for Blackburn Welfare, from the Blackburn Aerospace Company rather than the town, in the Yorkshire League, courtesy of the persuasive powers of Mike Page, and Cottingham Sports Club and Hilltop, via our Bob, saw me being frustrated by the standard and becoming a real moaner, the like of which I hated when I was younger and more able. I would like to apologise here to the players who were the subject of my acid tongue with its predictable football soundbites. Am I wasting my time making these runs? Get your fucking head up and you'll see a different world, trust me. This is a simple game, you're making it really complicated. You can chase that, cause I art. Have we swapped shirts with them for God's sake? And so on. I was a poor senior player with a poor attitude. I was, however, to get my comeuppance. I promised to turn out for Cottingham in the Amateur League Senior Division away to Hornsey one fine Saturday afternoon. I fancied a trip to the seaside, although I knew I might get some sledging because of my Bridtown days, Hornsey and Bridlington seeing themselves as rivals. In the second half, a 50-50 high-bouncing ball landed between me and their goalkeeper, and he came racing out, quickly clattering me unceremoniously, the whereabouts of the ball being incidental. I was winded and down for a minute or two, but eventually got up and carried on to finish the game. I didn't feel great when I got home, but we'd arranged to go out drinking with our Bob and company, the real attraction for me being a meal out at the wonderful new trendy Indian restaurant on Beverly Road called the Shish Mahal. I craved one of their lamb rogan josh main courses with rice, chutneys and chapati, so we had booked in for what we knew would be another great night of banter, laughter and lovely food. My back was aching from the afternoon collision, but the quality of the evening took the discomfort away, until I went for a pee. I looked down, and it was not unlike watching the pouring of the red wine I had just witnessed at the table. I was peeing blood. I didn't tell anybody, not wanting to interrupt or spoil the evening, and I waited until we got back home to look again. This time I had the presence of mind to ask Sue for a container of some sort to take a sample. There was blood once again, so it was off to the hospital. Joy. The doctor would not countenance my homemade specimen, and I had to wait around to produce another one. After what seemed an age, I managed to produce a sample, and it was confirmed that I had a renal trauma, which I interpreted as a ruptured kidney. 
This meant I had to go on bed rest and move little more than my eyebrows until there were no traces of blood in my urine. This took a week and gave me a lot of thinking time to decide if I was unlucky or just plain stupid. It must have been pretty serious because I had to be checked annually for the next two years to see if there was any blood in my urine, but thankfully it was clear. When I was admitted to hospital, Sue kindly thought my parents might want to know, so she went down to their bungalow just around the corner on one last drive in Cottingham and knocked on the glass panel front door. Mum reluctantly opened the door in silence and Sue said quietly, Paul has just been admitted to Hull Royal with a ruptured kidney and I thought you might like to know. Darling charming Ethel just muttered right and closed the door in her face. Looking back to 20 odd years later, with my dad dead and mother on her deathbed in that same bungalow, with only Sue caring for her and dealing with her oxygen bottles and mask as well as her basic needs, it does make me wonder what she was thinking as she slammed that door. Even more so, given that mum remarked, our Paul, he was always my favourite. Sue was justifiably amazed at hearing this and just couldn't help challenging her. Oh, come on, Ethel. We all know it was always Ronnie. No, no, Paul was always different from the off. What a waste of those early years with my delightful and worthy young family. This left me thinking what a dangerous thing prejudice of any sort is. It clouds your judgment. And though it is human to have unconscious bias, or even very conscious bias in the case of my mother, we must recognise it and fight against it. If we do we are in grave danger of making the most horrendous errors of judgment. Maybe some good did come of my bleeding kidney, because one Saturday evening a few weeks later, my dad pulled up outside of our house on Northgate, and he emerged from the back with a box of fruit and veg. As he walked down the path, Sue spotted him through the window and had opened the front door before he arrived wearily at its threshold. I thought this might help, he muttered as he handed the box over declining to come in, but walking straight back from whence he came. The olive branch, however, had been accepted. The beginnings of a limited but welcome reconciliation were evident, with Sue rather than the ever-grumpy me making the running. Sue was to become very dear to both my mother and father in their last years, Dad coming round to sit and talk endlessly with her as pretty much the only person who would give him the sort of intimacy he obviously needed. Mum came to realise that her fear of getting a daughter-in-law like our Ronnie's Denise was unfounded. Seriously and damagingly unfounded. Upon reflection a lifetime later, I realised I had a body that was never going to hold up under the physical demands of a sporting career, no matter what my will or ambition. There may have been a fleeting glimpse of talents here and there, and a true cerebral understanding of the game of association football but this was nowhere near enough. I was, however, good with people and grew to know what it takes to create and maintain a winning team. This was going to serve me well in my future business career. As for families, I guess we've all got one of those to try and figure out.